We're so glad you are here with us this morning. My name is Joe. I serve as one of the pastors here, and it's just a joy and honor to have everybody here with us this morning. We'd love to connect with you, as was mentioned before. Let us know if you're a first-time guest. You can fill out a connection card that you can find on our website or on our Riverbend app, as well as what's called Sunday Essentials, which you'll find on the app that allow you to know what's going on in our community, as well as sermon notes to follow along with today's message. And today we're kicking off a brand new teaching series called The Pursuit of Greatness. Say that with me out loud, The Pursuit of Greatness. The Pursuit of Greatness. The Pursuit of Greatness. Now, as we hear the word greatness, there are a couple things that happen depending on who you are. First of all, some of us, when we hear the word greatness, we're like, yes, I want to be the best of the best, right? I want to get ahead. I want to show how much I can do, that I'm willing to do anything it takes to show that I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. We get very competitive. And we see this in our lives, not just in our careers, but things like board games, right? Have you noticed? When people want to be the best of the best, things like that, the competitive drive takes over. But then there's another response when we hear the word greatness, and it's to shriek back a bit. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know if I have anything really to offer here. All right? Like, I... That's putting a lot of pressure on me to be great, right? We start shrinking a bit. I don't want to be prideful or arrogant. So to say I'm going to be great, like that that sounds prideful to me. And so we shriek back a bit. And both of those responses are normal and natural. So if you feel like, oh, is he telling me this is wrong? I'm telling you this is a normal and natural response to that word greatness. And yet in the midst of hearing what the culture defines greatness as and as we even see that in our own lives, depending on our family story or, or the, the situations we found ourselves in to arrive at what greatness is. I think it's important that we hear what Jesus himself said about greatness. What does it actually mean to be great? And so as we think about that, here's the first thing I want to give to us. First is this, what does it take to be great? What does it take to be great? And there's a lot of definitions you can go to. There's a lot of ways that you could frame this out. There's a lot of people who've written about this, spoken about this. But again, we want to go to the source. We want to go, as they say, to the horse's mouth, right? We want to hear directly from the source of authority for our life in leadership. And as we think about who we are as a community, following after Jesus in his ways. Because it's not enough just to say, hey, we want to proclaim who Jesus is. We actually want to walk in the Jesus way. We want our lives integrated with who he is. So I want you to hear what Jesus said about greatness. Listen to what it says here. It says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what Jesus does is he says, hey, here's what the culture says about greatness. They use their position, their power, for their own sake and their own gain. They lord it over people. They lord it over people. And it wasn't just limited to the rulers of the day. The religious leaders were like this as well. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them had that same posture. And so the disciples are like, what does it take to be the greatest? I want to be the greatest. I want to be the greatest. Because they had in their minds 
the definition that Jesus talked about beforehand, how the, the culture and the world had defined it. And he says, no, in order to be the greatest, you actually must become a servant. You must have a posture that says, I'm going to use my power, my gifts, my strengths, my experiences, not just for me and my own gain, but for the gain of others. I'm not just going to be about me, I'm going to be about we. I'm going to look at what it means to do what Jesus did as he would go to his disciples and prior to being handed over and then being betrayed and crucified. He told them, hey, when you're the most powerful person in the room, the posture that you take is that of a servant. You humble yourself, and he would go on to wash their feet. He would wash his betrayer's feet in Judas. He would wash every single disciple's feet in that step of showing them, hey, this is what it means to serve. This is what it means to join me and what it is, I, what it is that I want to do here in you and through you as well. And he says, again, we have to be a servant. We have to be a slave. We have to understand what the Son of Man came to do. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He paid a price for us. And so when we think about the idea of serving, we're responding to him ultimately serving and sacrificing for us. Now, when we read something like this, there's a lot of ways that we could unpack and apply it to our lives. But what I want to do in this teaching series is I want us to hear how Jesus actually fleshes this out a bit, how he puts legs to what he gives here, this vision. And there are a couple ways that I want us to do that. I want us to to hear again what he had to say about greatness, but specifically when he would give these teachings. And he gives teachings around the, the great commandment. And that's what we'll look at today. And then what's called the the great commission. And then we're going to see his great compassion. But the question I want us to wrestle with today as we continue in this series, as we kick it off, is how do we achieve greatness according to Jesus? How do we achieve greatness according to Jesus? What does it look like to have this humble confidence to join Jesus and what he says and has for us? How do we achieve greatness according to Jesus. Well, I want us to hear a time in the life of Jesus where he was asked a question. And this question is really going to help us understand more fully what it means to be a servant, what it means to experience and to pursue true greatness. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up with me to Matthew 22. Verses are on the screen. We're going to be starting in verse 34. And as we're in this, I also want to let you know You can follow along through the app as well. But I want you to hear again what Jesus does when he unpacks and answers questions surrounding the idea of greatness. Listen to what it says. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. They got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. So I want you just to get this sense. Jesus is in these conversations, and prior to this moment, he's in some heated dialogue with some religious leaders, and he's silencing them. And and this idea of testing, testing Jesus, wasn't even uh, insincere. Many don't believe it was an insincere question by this expert in the law, but rather it was a question that had been 
asked and argued many times prior to Jesus coming on the scene. They wanted to know, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Because there were 613 commandments. There were 613 commandments. And as you look at it, there are 248 that were positive and 365 that were negative. And so they're, they're wrestling with, how do you do this? And, and what was believed in that day is if you followed the greater of the commandments, you didn't have to worry about the lesser of the commandments. And it was just a way of saying, hey, we're, we're able to pass the exam. But we know when you can't keep one part of the, the law, you break all the law, right? This is why Jesus came to be a ransom for us, right? He came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So listen to how Jesus responds. And I want us to read this out loud together on three. One, two, three. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And so what Jesus says is he says, hey, really what it's about is loving God with all that you are. And so what he does is he goes back to the Old Testament and he quotes to them what's referred to as the Shema. Say that with me out loud. Shema. Shema. And Shema was just a declaration of belief. It was a declaration of belief. And it's found in Deuteronomy. And listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And so as you look at what's happening here, he's, he's taking them back to what they knew and saying, hey, this is what it's about. This is the first commandment. Now, what does that mean to love God this way? And so I came across these helpful explanations from from Crossway that I thought did a great job of unpacking between the two uh, accounts, whether it's the gospel account and also this Deuteronomy account. So if you're following along and taking notes, here's a couple ways that we can unpack this. The first is this. We love God with all of our heart when we love him exclusively. Him and Him alone. There's an exclusive nature to our love for God. We're seeing Him for who He is. And we love God because He first loved us. We're just responding to His love, right? We're responding to His love. You know, it's the idea of exclusively giving yourself to a person. You know, it's what that that great philosopher Beyonce said, you know, if you wanted it, you should have put a ring on it, right? It's the idea of like, hey, you know, at one point or another, I had to say to Amy, hey, I want to exclusively be with you for the rest of my life. I have to make a commitment. And in, in an illustration of what this is talking about, it's saying, hey, we're going to exclusively see God as who he truly is, that God is over good things, because it's easy to make good things a God thing. And so this is the first part of that. The second part is this, that we love God with all our soul when we find our satisfaction in him more than any other person or thing. And so again, good things are gifts from him. But the ultimate satisfaction comes from walking with Jesus because there's so many longings in our souls. There's so many yearnings. I mean, if you think about this last year and a half and this collective trauma, I think it's revealed to us these deep longings and yearnings that we have. And no matter how we try to fill those things, apart from God, through his son, Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit in our lives, they come up short. 
They can't sustain us. And again, that doesn't mean he doesn't use these good gifts, but these good gifts are meant to point us to who is the ultimate one who gives us satisfaction for our souls. And so we need to be thinking about that, considering that as we talk about loving God. Because one of the things that we want to be aware of is that we're meant to walk with God. This is a lifelong relationship with the living God. And through our faith and trust in Jesus, we get to know the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. So when we talk about getting in the scriptures, it's never just an intellectual exercise. It's meant to involve our whole person because we're intended to walk with Jesus. We're intended to anchor ourselves in who he is and in his ways and to integrate our lives around him. Well, the next part of this is we love God with all of our mind when we make, make decisions to obey his every command. We love God with all our mind when we make decisions to obey his every command. And I don't know about you, but when you hear the word obedience, again, it's kind of loaded, right? Like, obey. <laughs> and, you know, the way Jesus talks about obedience throughout the scriptures is it's actually life-giving for us. So obedience isn't to burden our lives down or to hold us back. It's to set us free. It's when Jesus would talk in John 8, and, and they would talk about this freedom, and they want this freedom, and, and how the evil one, would, the father of lies, would come to deceive. And, and he says, listen, if you'll listen to what I say and put it into a practice, if you'll obey my commands, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, 31 through 32. There's a freedom that he wants to give us. And not only is there a freedom that he wants to give us, we experience the full measure of his love towards us when we step in obedience. This isn't about earning his love, but we start to understand the fullness of it when we walk with him and we walk in his ways in response to what he's done for us. And in American Christianity, it is so easy to to think that our faith is just about information-based disciple-making. And we'll see this next week, but Jesus doesn't call us to information-based disciple-making. He calls us to obedience-based disciple-making. That when he talks and we listen, and then we do what he asks us to do, yes, we need to be informed. But oftentimes we want more information, but I want you to know the more information you have, the more accountability, more accountability there will be before God, the more accountable you are before him. And so we need to, to learn from our brothers and sisters around the world that say, hey, we're not going to move forward in the next lesson until we actually listen to the first lesson and put it into practice. In fact, they'll get together and they'll be asking the question, hey, did you apply what we talked about last Sunday? No, I haven't had a chance to do that. Okay, let's do it again. Oh, next week, did you do that? Did you apply what we talked Nope. Okay, let's do it again. What are they saying? They're saying, hey, it's not enough to know something. You've got to be transformed by it. You've got to be formed by it. It's got to lead your life. And this is what Jesus is getting to as well. The next part of this is that we love God with all our strength when we preserve, persevere in the face of every trial. When we persevere in the face of every trial, when we endure, when we go through the experiences that we've experienced even in this last year, and we stay close to him, and we allow him to strengthen us and to mold us, and to allow our lives to, again, be changed and transformed by his comfort, by the fact that he knows what he's up to in our lives, and that he wants to carry these broken 
pieces of our lives, these places in our lives. He wants to do it with us. He wants to journey in our lives together with him. He wants to walk with us. So I want you to be thinking about that. Where, where are you experiencing difficulty? Where are those trials? And what do they look like in your life right now? I want you to know he wants to meet you there. And he wants to walk with you in the midst of that. He doesn't want you to pretend it's one way when it's another way. When you need wisdom, it says to cry out, I need wisdom. When you feel weak, say, I'm weak, but when I'm weak, you're strong. I need you. I want you to walk with me in this moment. And many of us in this room, we're going through some really heavy and difficult things. And I want you to know there's one who can carry the load with you. To cast your cares on him because he cares for you. He cares deeply for you. And as we continue on here, here's a question I want you to be thinking about. How is God's love for you growing your love for him? How is God's love for you? He loves you. He loves you. I mean, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, Jesus. Right? That, that we wouldn't have to wonder about what he thinks of us in the way to him, but through Jesus, we can walk. We can walk in the way of love. And so how is his love for you growing your love for him? Again, we love because he first loved us. He first loved us. Well, as we continue on here, I want you to hear what Jesus goes on to do because he gives this this first part to the answer, but then there's a second part. And he says this, and the second is like it. And the second is like it. Say that with me. And the second is like it. Say that again with confidence. And the second is like it. Because I don't want us to miss this. Because Jesus, again, he's the leader. He's the one we're following after. He's our savior. He's the, the, the one the church is built upon. But listen to what he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophet and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Again, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And it's really interesting. Jesus says, essentially, loving God and loving people is what all the law and the prophets hang on. They hang on these two commands that were given. And depending on how you were brought up, you tend to pick one over the other or pick one and ignore the other, just like they did in this cultural context. They would be like, okay, I get the loving God. That makes total sense, love God. But then they would hear, love your neighbor as yourself. And they'd be like, I don't know about that, Jesus. I mean, you had me at the love God part, but now you're asking me to love my neighbor. It's, it's like it. And then for us in our context, often it's, hey, I get the love your neighbor, but the love God part, ah, nah, yeah, ah, nah, I don't. But I want you to hear, again, as we think about what's said here, where Jesus is pulling from. Because again, he's speaking in a way that the audience would understand. And this actually comes from Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18. It says this, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he gives even more definition we hear in Leviticus to this idea. Don't seek revenge. Don't bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I think it's interesting that they use this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Because what this really speaks to is something that I think is often missed when we talk about a passage like this. And here it is. Here it is. And I wrote wrote it out for us in our notes. The first part is this. How you see and treat yourself is how you will see and treat others. See, Jesus says, love love the Lord, love God with with all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, So as we think about that, Have you noticed that when you are in a cycle of shame and you feel like a failure because you have failed, don't you view people that same way? When there is a a point in your own life and in your own journey, as you see yourself as someone who is never enough, can never measure up, somebody who's in this constant state of disappointment and disillusionment, don't you see people that way as well? Sometimes you look down on them. Sometimes you elevate them higher than yourself. And I'm not talking about the Jesus way, but you devalue yourself and you say, hey, I'm going to, this is like this false humility. Sometimes in our own lives when we think we're entitled or we're owed something and you're like, man, look at my family, look what I've come through, look at my education, you know, you fill in the blank. We start to look down on people potentially or look down on tasks that Oh man, I'm above that. I'm above that. Again, each of us has some way in which we see ourselves and how we treat ourselves. And, and I'm not talking about this uh, narcissistic, the world revolves around me kind of way, but I think it's important that we identify this because Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he's not talking just about the little person who lives next to you. He's talking about the people that you're going to encounter. So here's the question for you. How do you see and treat yourself, and how do you see and treat others? I want you to think about that. Before God, how do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? Are you, are you a person that's seeing yourself through the lens of your worst moments, your best moments? Are you seeing yourself uh, in, in a way that doesn't make much of Jesus and what he's done for you? You minimize your need for him, or you minimize the good works that he's called you to? That he has a purpose for you? He's made you on purpose and for a purpose? How are you viewing yourself and how are you treating yourself? And how is that impacting the way you view others? What's that looking like in your own life? Because again, again, I don't want us to miss this. He says to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, as we continue on here, it's important that we understand that we love like Jesus when we daily receive the love of Jesus. We love like Jesus when we daily receive the love of Jesus. Now, I just want to make sure that we know we are so grateful to gather together on a Sunday. We love it. Man, it's awesome, right? I love seeing you guys. I love being together. I got some new friends that I made uh, recently, and I got to show them around uh, this morning. That was fun. That's awesome, right? But here's the thing. If you're filling up on just Sunday on the love of Jesus and not filling up on it every day, it is impossible to love like Jesus. It, it's impossible. Because love is a commitment. It is a choice, for sure. Don't get me wrong. We need to do that. But we give what, we re- what we've received, right? And you can't give what you really don't have. We're not meant to give from a place of apart from walking with Jesus or what he would say, abiding in Jesus. That this loving union with Jesus is meant to lead us 
to the way we love and treat those around us. So I want to ask you, are you daily receiving his love for you? Are you daily receiving his love for you? Are you just basking in the fact that he says, you're my son and my daughter who I love and I'm well pleased with? Do you bask in that? And I'm going to love you no matter how you perform. I won't love you more. I won't love you less. This is what I say of you. This is what I have for you. And even in those places where he will go to challenge us, challenge us, right? Like recently he was challenging me on something in my time alone with him. And he was like, hey, here's how you bless Amy, my wife. He gave me something very concrete. Stop talking about Riverbend. <laughs> That's what he said. He said, stop talking about Riverbend. Just go a couple hours here without talking about Riverbend. And I said, okay, all right, that's right. Yes, sir, yes, yes. I'm going to heed that, that warning and that loving care for me. But as I receive his love, then I can give it to others. And this is how it's meant to go. We're meant to fill up and to spill out his love, to fill up on his love and to spill out. And I think one of the dangers in the American church right now is that we often are looking for somebody to give us something that only Jesus can give us. We're looking at preachers, podcasters, uh, commentators. Uh, you're, you're looking at people who are writing all kinds of great things. And don't get me wrong, those are great. And I love great teachers, and I love to listen and learn from them and, and podcasters. But one of the things the Scriptures make very clear is that the deep things of God are ultimately revealed as we walk deeply with God. So if we want to know the deep things of God, That happens when we walk in communion and intimacy with Jesus. And by the power of the Spirit, he reveals these things. That doesn't mean he doesn't use people, right? Like, yes, he he uses people to help us to understand. But it's never meant to replace what he alone can give to us. You know, it's the same thing like when I'm in a bad mood and a bad attitude. I have a bad attitude and I'm trying to, I'm getting grumpy at the house and I'm talking to Amy and Ray and, uh, you know, I'm kind of getting my, you know, Yes, I have moments like that, yes. And, and as I have moments like that, Amy's like, hey, you know what? You need to get with Jesus because you getting with Jesus is the only way this is actually going to get solved. I can't solve this for you. And what she's saying, she's saying, I'm not Jesus, FYI. And then secondly, that whatever's going on internally in you, you need to go to work with him on in your own life and journey. And so I want you to be thinking about that because we love like Jesus when we daily receive the love of Jesus. And here, as we continue on, I want to ask you another question. Which of these commands do you tend to neglect? Loving God or loving people? Which of these two commands? Loving God or loving people? Because it's easy to pick one over the other, but Jesus doesn't talk like that. You notice? He says, hey, here's the first one, and the second is like it. They're actually meant to work together. Our love for God is meant to lead to our love for people. And depending on how you were brought up, the love of God is something that we're like, man, I'm I'm there. I'm sold on that. I'm all about that. But then we talk about loving our neighbor as ourselves. When we start caring and having empathy and concern and, and desiring to see kingdom goodness transpire in the world, things being made right according to what God has for us, We have a difficult time with that. We have a difficult time understanding how that works together. And I just would encourage you to ask God to show you why that is. What's the hindrance in your own life? But then there's another part of this. There there are people who will say, 
It's about loving people or loving my neighbor as myself, but loving God isn't the priority for me. And what's happened right now in our culture, and as I've been in a lot of conversations with people, is that we misunderstand what loving our neighbor as ourself really means in loving people. We interpret loving people and loving our neighbor as ourselves as saying and telling them everything they want to hear, not what they need to hear. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does not talk that way. You know, in a a very real way, this happens in the area of sexuality. This happens in the area of politics. This happens in the area, you just fill in the blank. We start to do this, and what happens is we like to redefine things, and we like to put God as the center of it, but we're not looking to the source of what he says about all those things. And if we're going to love our neighbor well, we need to point them in a gracious and truthful way to God's way, to what he has for us, what he's created us for. It is, I just want to be very frank with you for a moment. It's so unloving to tell people just what they want to hear, but not what they need to hear. That is unloving. It's also unloving, it's also unloving to tell them what they need to hear, but not to do it in a gracious way. That is unloving. That is unloving. And I've been in a lot of conversations recently where people push back on me and say things like, Joseph, I just want to love my neighbor as myself. I'm like, well, who gets to define what it means to love your neighbor as yourself? Is it you or is it loving God with all that you are that's defining that? Are we allowing the cultural, whether that's in the church or in the world, to define that? Or are we allowing Jesus and his ways and his kingdom to define that? Because that's what it's meant to to be. It's meant to be defined by him. So again, which of these commands do you tend to neglect? Loving God or loving people? Well, as we continue on here, our love for God is meant to inform how we love people. And, And I want you just to get that. Because they're meant to work together. They're meant to work in such a way that when we love God, it's going to lead me to loving people. Now, I want us to know we got to fill up on his love and then give that love. But we can't just fill up on the love. We've got to actually do something with it. Because many of you here in this room, you've heard these verses before. You could actually get up here and teach on it. You could lead a group on it. You could do all kinds of things with it. But the question is, for each of us, not could I do something with it. The question is, what am I going to do with it? What am I going to do with it? How is that going to impact me? So here's a, another question for you as we conclude our time together. What's one way you can grow in your love for God and people this week? What's one way you can grow in your love for God and people this week? I want you to think about this because as we talk about pursuing greatness, Jesus gives this great commandment. And he says, hey, to, to be great, you've got to become a servant, Right? And part of serving people is to love God well and then to love people in response to that. So what's one way that you can grow in that? What's one way that you could grow in your love for God and your love for people? Maybe for you, it's going to be to take some time to be silent before God. Maybe for you, instead of having the radio blasting or listening to some podcast, you're going to just turn it off and maybe you're going to download the Bible app and let the Bible speak over you. You're going to read maybe this passage. Maybe for some of you, you're going to get outside and just pray. You know, there's all kinds of ways that you can do that. 
Maybe for some of us, as we think about the, the needs of, of those around us and we see tangible ways that we can walk with them. And sometimes the tangible ways is just asking simple questions like, how are you doing? And slowing down enough to actually let them answer. How are you doing? And then being bold enough if the opportunity arises. Hey, would you mind if I prayed with you about what you shared? Would you mind? Maybe it's to meet a a tangible need through getting groceries or, or helping with some other way. But I want you to be thinking about that. Because we're meant to grow in our love for God and our love for people. Let's pray together. Father, right now, we thank you so much for your word that is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it, it cuts through. It cuts through and reveals our intentions and transforms our lives. And I pray that as we think about this and as we consider loving you as you've loved us and loving others as you've loved us, I pray that we'd be people who grow grow in our love for you and our love for others. Lord, and I pray that you would help us to respond first and foremost to who you are, what you've done for us. So if there's anybody who has yet to put their faith and trust in you, Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that they would do so, that they would see you for who you are and to declare, I'm putting my trust in you, Jesus, as my Savior. I know I have a need because of my brokenness and my failures and my sin. And I just declare, I need you. I need you for forgiveness. I need you to experience the purposes that you've created me for. And then, Lord, I pray that that would not only stop there, and as people are making a decision, many of us have made a decision already, but I pray that we would just bask in your great love for us. And as we bask in it, I pray it would lead us to love others well. Give us eyes to see how you're at work all around us to be those who bring your love, your good news, wherever we go. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.